Well, brother, let's open up God's Word together and together study it, together hear it, together give ourselves to believing it and obeying it. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're picking up where we left off last week, right in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6.12 is where we'll pick up. Today we find that among the other litany of sins that are going on in the Corinthian church, apparently some within the church were actively committing sexual immorality, even visiting prostitutes, and they were defending it theologically. So in response, what we find is, I think, one of the most important passages in the entire Bible on how sexual immorality is contrary to the fundamentals of the Gospel and how it's destructive even to who we are as human beings. So we pick up at verse 12 through the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. Brethren, this is God's Word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord, and will raise us also by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. Pray with me again. Father, we confess that you are the thrice holy God, and as you are holy, you have also called us to be holy. And so, Lord, as we approach your word, we we pray just that you would show us what it means to be holy, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might have the strength to be holy. Help us to glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you're familiar with the popular phrase in our day, my body, my choice. It's a common slogan in our day, particularly in light of the ongoing political turmoil over abortion. My body, my choice. It's a statement that's aimed at affirming what we might say bodily autonomy or individuality. It's a statement that's aimed at, at claiming that individual right to govern our bodies how we please and particularly as it's often used our right to govern our bodies how we please 
regarding sexuality and sexual reproduction. Of course, we know that what the phrase really means and how it's often used is, well, if I want to murder my child in the womb, I should have the choice and the right to do so. But as I contemplated 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I was struck by how my body, my choice, is exactly the same argument employed by those here in the church that wish to express their sexual freedom. The worst part about it is that these are Christians saying this. The worst part about this passage is that there were some who were visiting prostitutes and committing sexual immorality, and they were defending this practice theologically. Their argument was that, well, we are free from the legal demands of the law, our choice. And since our future inheritance awaits um, um, life in the age to come, then really our physical bodies and what we do with them doesn't really matter. Our bodies. In other words, they were actually using the gospel. They were actually using a faulty view of the end times. Remember last week I said eschatology matters. They had a particular view of the end times. They had a particular view of spirituality and the human body. And they were using that to defend sexual immorality. My body. My choice. As we think about this, I couldn't help but thinking about how, you know, isn't it ironic that my body, my choice, it's, it's aimed at supporting the body and supporting choice, but it actually ends up undermining both. That's actually what Paul kind of argues here in response. He's, he basically says sexual immorality doesn't liberate your body. It actually destroys it. Sexual morality isn't an expression of your freedom. Rather, it's an enslavement to your own passions and it places you under the control of another. My body, my choice actually ends up undermining both. And I think we see this in our day. Right? It's used to defend abortion, which is the destroying of a human body. And leaving that unborn child with no choice. Not to mention how it does great damage psychologically to the mother, emotionally, spiritually. My body, my choice, it's often used to defend homosexuality as well. That's something that's contrary to the physical makeup of the human body and the purposes of creation, and it thus destroys it. And it enslaves that person under passions that are stronger than them. It's used to defend transgenderism as well. My body, my choice, Transgenderism, it's awful. The, the willful mutilation of the body. Sometimes permanently so that they then have no choice if later they decide they want to go back. I give these examples, brethren, because I believe this passage shows us, and this is, this is a bold statement, but I believe it is true. I believe this passage shows us that the sexual ethic of believers is not just different than it is for unbelievers, but rather we're, we're actually dealing with two different religions. Two different religions. Paganism and sexual immorality always go hand in hand in culture and in scripture. Paganism, <clears throat> unbelief, secularism, 
always ends up destroying the body. (coughs) And enslaving us to irrational passions. So where the gospel really cuts here, it's not just to give us, you know, a set of rules so that we can be prudes, for lack of a better term, prudish rules for, for saving ourselves for marriage. Rather, the Bible responds here by giving us a, a grander and greater theology, a theology of the body, that the body is good and that God has grand plans for the human body in the gospel. <coughs> right here, the Apostle Paul attacks the worldview behind this kind of sexual immorality. And he wants to show us that the bodies, our bodies here on earth, what we do with them matters because our bodies were created for the Lord and created for eternity. And he wants to show us where true freedom is found, not in giving ourselves to every bodily passion, but true freedom being in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, His dwelling presence within us, and living in light of that freedom, the freedom that we will enjoy for all of eternity. So that's the message here today. It's pretty simple. On the basis of our redemption, on the basis of our freedom in the gospel, on the basis of our glorious future inheritance, we're called to glorify our God with our bodies here on earth. That's what we find here today. So as we turn to the passage, we might ask the question, how do the scriptures address sexual immorality? How do the scriptures address my body, my choice? Well, here we find a theology of the human body. And I want to cover it under four points. Four things we'll see here today. Four things about the human body. The body is free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The body is created for eternity. The body is united to Jesus Christ. The body is a sacred dwelling place of our God. Those are the four things that we'll see today. So let's begin. The body is free in order to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that Paul emphasizes here. We're free in order to serve Christ. Back in chapter 5, we learned that there was sexual immorality going on in the church. And if you'll remember, we covered that a few weeks ago. Paul's focus there was more on the church's response to this sexual immorality. But here Paul returns to it. You know, he has that brief detour, uh, the first part of chapter 6, where he deals with Corinthians suing one another. Well, now he turns to another issue where they're sinning against one another, but he really turns to it because this is part of his grander argument about what is true liberty and what is true spirituality. The Corinthians were defending their sexual sin theologically. And so that's why he returns. And picking up here in verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me. You may notice that there are quotation marks around the statement there. All things are lawful for me. This is because this appears to be a quote that the Corinthians themselves were saying in response um, to, again, defending their behavior theologically. I might think of it the same way. Just as my body, my choice is a popular slogan in our day, meant to defend a particular behavior. 
That's what they were doing here. All things are lawful for me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want with my body. But what's interesting about this, I think, is that most likely this was a slogan um, that the Apostle Paul himself had popularized. The Corinthians, in, in other words, were taking his own words, things that he had taught in the church, truths that he really stuck to and held to, and they twisted it to serve their own ends. The most dangerous lie is always that which is closest to the truth, right? That's what's going on here. As we think about this, <coughs> we know that there is a lot of truth in the statement that all things are lawful for the Christian. In the gospel, we are not legally bound to the law. We have been freed from all of the demands and punishment and requirements of the law legally. In the gospel, we don't have to obey the Old Testament dietary restrictions or the temple rituals or the sacrifices or the festivals or the ceremonies or circumcision. So Paul, you can understand here, would absolutely say all things are lawful for me in response to a lot of the Jewish errors that were going on in that day. Of course, we can't quite say the same about the moral law of God. We are free from it legally, but it does still, um, in this sense, guide and direct us. Yet even still, think about the book of James when it talks about the moral law of God. You know what it calls the law of God there? It says the law of liberty. The law of God to the Christian is the law of liberty. Because our standing with God is not based upon our obedience to the law. Our standing before God is not based upon whether we have obeyed or disobeyed. We don't, in this sense, our law, we don't keep the law in order to merit or earn salvation or even to maintain our standing before God. We're free from it. We're free from its judgments. We're free from its condemnation. Even though, in Christ, we are called to obey it. Why? Not legally do this or else. We're called to obey it out of love. Out of gratitude. For what God has done for us in Christ. <coughs> That's why Augustine famously said, Christian life really comes down to this. Love God and do what you will. Love God and do what you will. That's what the Christian life is all about. But at the same time, the point here is that this saying was being used by the Corinthians to defend their willfully breaking the moral law of God. And Paul's point is that that's not what freedom is. That's not what freedom is. Uh, we covered the topic of Christian liberty in our Sunday school series. Um, I think it's been a couple of months now, chapter 21. But when we covered Christian liberty... Our confession states essentially that to use our freedom in Christ and our liberty in Christ to practice sin or to cherish sinful lust is actually to pervert the grace of the gospel and to destroy the liberty that Christ purchased for us. And that's exactly what Paul says here. He doesn't dispute the fact that all things are lawful. He just says, ah, 
But not all things are helpful. The word translated helpful here, (coughs) it's a word that's often used to refer to what is beneficial for the community. That's how it's most often used. Not just individually helpful, but communally helpful. And this really hits at a fundamental truth of our liberty in Christ. Our freedom is not for self, ultimately. Our freedom is so that we might serve God and others. And so the important question when we deal with matters of of morality and ethics, it really comes down to not is, am I free to do this, but does it help others? Is this good for the body of Christ? It's not my body, my choice. It's my body is part of a, a larger body of Christ. And it's not my choice then, so it's our choice in a sense. True freedom is released from the sinful bondage of self and self-love. That's to image God. That's to put on the mind of Christ. And is there any freedom greater than what God Himself enjoys? True freedom is in giving yourself for the good of others and for the glory of God. And so sexual immorality, the point here, it isn't beneficial for the body of Christ. It destroys the body of Christ. It's not helpful to the body of Christ. It's not true freedom. It's true. It's actually bondage. Which is actually what he says next. He repeats the phrase there in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. But then he says, but I will not be dominated by anything. Not only is it not helpful to the body of Christ, But there's a level of bondage entailed in sexual immorality as well. Here, if you just look one chapter over to chapter 7, verse 4, Paul talks about sexual intimacy in marriage. It's important what he says here as we think about what it means to be dominated by something. In chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's interesting about this is that the verb have authority is the same verb translated in our verse 12 as dominated. Same word, same verb. And I think this brings out the point that what Paul is saying is when you are joined to someone sexually, you're under their power. In a very real sense, in that act, they are exercising authority over your body. In marriage, this is a a good and honorable thing because what is marriage all about? It's about giving yourself and everything you have to another in love. But why would you give your body over to the authority of a prostitute? Why would you give power over your body to someone whom you're not joined to in marriage, meaning that they can rule over you, they can trample you if they want, and walk away? Is that freedom? No, it's bondage. You see, Paul's argument here is the same thing that we must say in response to the the so-called sexual liberation of our day, claiming to be free and liberated so that you can do whatever you want is actually to say, 
I'm putting myself under greater bondage and greater enslavement. Because that's what sexual morality brings. How ironic is it then to say my body and my choice when you're giving up your body and you're giving up your choice to someone who might not care about it at all. I can't help but think about how this applies to pornography as well. The use of pornography is an epidemic in our day, even within the church. Don't you know how addicting pornography is? Studies have shown that it's as addicting as crack cocaine. That's being dominated by something. That's not freedom. It's not freedom to be dominated by pornography. When you use pornography, you're letting someone else rule over your body. You're giving authority over your body to a stranger. It's dehumanizing. It's abusing. In, in some sense, you're doing that to them as well. And, and so no, no wonder then that pornography is, is clearly linked to you know, sky-high increase in depression and guilt and suicidal thoughts and laziness and isolation and, and demotivation. It's bondage. And it destroys you. It destroys your body. It destroys your choice to follow the acronym. Someone you don't know, someone on a screen, someone you will never meet is exercising authority over your body and they are destroying you. That's why Proverbs 5.4 says, don't you know that the steps of the forbidden woman lead down to death? And that those who go, they never come up again? Brethren, the law of Christian freedom is that we are set free from things that harm us. We are set free from things that dominate us so that we might be dominated by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we may be bound to His authority. And if you know who He is, He's good. It is a good thing to be enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what true freedom is. Secondly though, I'm going to move quickly here. Continuing to address sexual morality, we then see the body is made for eternity. The body is made for eternity. Uh, look again at verse 13 and 14. Quotation marks again. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for the food is another saying of the Corinthians. Another slogan that they were using in response to uh, defending their sexual immorality. And it makes it clear that the, the Corinthians looked at sex as if it was as trivial as eating a meal. In fact, I, I'd also say, I'm, I'm not sure, but I'd also say that maybe the rest of the sentence is also part of their slogan. God will destroy both one and the other. Our bodies and what we do with our bodies isn't all that important, they were saying. It's all going to pass away anyway. Just what an incredibly cheap view of sexual intimacy here. You know? You're hungry, so you get a snack. You have other desires, and so you visit a prostitute. It's a disdain for the body. It's a hatred of the body. Both your body and the, and the body of the one you're joined to. It's dehumanizing. 
But what this really shows us is that that the Corinthian understanding of spirituality is really corrupted by pagan thought. Um, And Greek thought, you're probably familiar with this under maybe the the title dualism or Gnosticism. Um, In Greek thought, um, matter, anything physical like our bodies or this world, it, it meant very little. It was the inner soul and the inner spirit that was pure and divine. And, and death is where we kind of, you know, are liberated to finally, you know, our souls are free then um, from this imprisonment of, of finality and mortality and be, you know, we're free then in that sense. Our spirits are free. And of course, you know, this thought is really prominent in our day all around us. Death is that gateway to true freedom. You know, our spirits are now unbounded. Death as you know, the means by which we become one with the universe. Heaven is that spiritual place where, you know, we just go and we reside on a cloud with a harp or something. This idea of dualism, though, it's, it's more than just views of the afterlife. In our day, it's also behind the sexual ethic. It's behind the my, bo- my body, my choice craziness. The popular sexual ethic, in order to defend itself, has to go back to these pagan roots. They have to separate body and spirit. They know that you can't keep those together and maintain their sexual immorality. And so in our day, it's, well, who is your true self? Are you being authentic to your inner spirit? Homosexuality, it ignores the makeup of the body. It ignores the physical objective reality, scientific, that a male is physically made to join with a female and vice versa. It ignores that reality in favor of being true to your inner self. The mind, the feelings, the desires, spirit over body. Transgenderism, the same way, takes it to another extreme. Who I am on the inside. That's what matters. That's who I am. Even the use of pornography. A separation of of the most intimate physical act of the human body in fellowship with another in favor of an individualized counterfeit experience the mind and the spirit. That's what the Corinthians were saying. What I do with my body doesn't matter. It's my inner person that really matters. It's my spirit. It's my perception of myself. What's wrong with casual sex then? Love doesn't have to be present. I wasn't really into that. My heart and my feelings weren't into that. I was just fulfilling a bodily urge. I was just doing what was normal. I was just trying to make somebody else happy. My body doesn't matter regarding what I do and how I use it because the heart wants what the heart wants. There's nothing new under the sun. Elevating the inner spirit above physicality and the human body, it's just ancient paganism repackaged. It's the same thing. How does Paul respond to it then? How do we respond to it in our day? I love how C.S. Lewis summarized it well. God likes matter because he invented it. There's a world of truth in that. 
And that's what Paul says here. Our bodies are good. Verse 13. Because they are meant for the Lord. How do we know that? Verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. You see the difference between Christianity and every other form of paganism and religion and secularized worldview? The difference between Christianity and everything else, I think, is found very penetratingly in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. That's one of the most powerful statements to confront the issues of our day. I believe in the resurrection. If we believe in the resurrection, we can't take the body lightly. The resurrection assures us that this creation, that the matter of this creation, the physicality of the creation, this creation, that our bodies, our physical members are good. They are inherently good. How much more so when we think about the fact that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came down and assumed our flesh. And He took upon Himself a human body, not for 33 years, but permanently. He will always and forever be a human being. And when we believe that, we know that just as His body was raised out of the ground, although our bodies will one day die at the day of our death and enter the ground, because Christ was raised, our same bodies that we have right now will be raised from the ground and remade new. Jesus Christ, being a true human, raised from the dead, is proof to us that we will be raised in the same way. And this, when we look at redemption that way, we see that God saves us, God redeems us, not just our souls, not just our spirits, but holistically, body and spirit. God made you body and spirit. Your spirit is not meant to be separated from your body. That's why even though we talk right now, people who die in the Lord, they are in the presence of the Lord, but they are still awaiting and they are still longing for the resurrection because they long to be reunited with the body because that is how we are created. The implication is the body is made for eternity. If the body is made for eternity, then what you do with your body right now is not insignificant at all. He did not make your body for sexual immorality. He made it for eternity. Thus, all of our freedom in Christ must be filtered through that reality. Does my behavior with my body uphold the glory and beauty of goodness of God's creation? Does my behavior with my body in light of the recognition that I will have this body for eternity and God will redeem it and raise it the last day? That's how our future resurrection serves to motivate us to restrain and put to death our sinful lusts here in this life. Third, thirdly, Paul's not done. Um, again, got to move quickly here. The body is united to Jesus Christ, thirdly. The body is united to Jesus Christ. Look at verses 15 through 18. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Our future resurrection ought to inform how we handle our bodies and how we behave. So should our union with Christ as well. Maybe even much more so. And that's what Paul moves to here in verses 15 through 18. I don't want you to overlook too quickly this statement here in verse 15. It's it's pretty astounding, the, the first part of it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know from other passages like Romans 6 that you've been united with Him and raised in His resurrection? Do you not know that your body is a member of Christ's own resurrected body? Do you not know that your union with Christ isn't just spiritual, but that your physical body is joined to and bound to Christ's own resurrected body? No wonder he says never or forbid. God forbid. It's horrific. It's unthinkable to then take a member of Christ's resurrected body and join it to a prostitute. Or join it to anyone whom we're not bound to in holy matrimony. Here in verse 17, Paul reminds the church of the reality of the sexual union as God created it. He says here that the sexual union, two people become one flesh. In the sexual union, there is a physical connection but there's also an emotional connection there's a psychological connection there is a bond between two people that is more intimate than any other bond or union or fellowship in all creation and that's why when that bond is broken or severed when it's outside the bond's the bounds of a marriage covenant where people can just go, come as they please, it brings trauma. Because that's not how God created sex. We'll return to that in just a moment. But the point here is that basically Paul is saying, you know, there's no such thing as casual sex. It doesn't exist. The very term itself is contradictory. There's no such thing as well, that was just something my body did. My heart wasn't really in it. This is further emphasized down in verse 17 where he says, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become one spirit with Him. Again, union with Christ. And union with Christ means, and to put it bluntly, if we are united to Christ, we bring Jesus Christ with us into the bedroom. Think about how we considered under the first point where in the sexual union we give over to the other person the power and authority of our bodies. Right? They dominate us in one sense. We give them access to the most intimate and sacred areas of our entire being, body and spirit. Well, if you're joined to Christ... So that your members are united to Him. Members, it's a physical statement. Like the member of your hand 
If you're joined to Christ, are you going to take your members of Christ's body and put them under the mastery of a prostitute? That's the point. Would you ever do that? Would you ever subject the body of Christ to the authority of a prostitute? To put it differently, when we are joined to someone sexually outside of marriage, we're acting out a lie. We're we're lying not with our words, but with our bodies. We are saying to them, essentially, I'm going to act like I'm united to you, but I'm really not. I'm going to act like I'm one with you in life and in death and sickness and in health. All things common, all things together, all things in union, but I'm really not because I can skip out whenever I want. We're lying with our bodies because we're saying, I'm going to take the benefits of the marriage union, but I'm not going to give or promise or fulfill any end of the bargain. We're lying with our bodies because we're saying, I'm going to hand over what I have surrendered to Jesus Christ. My body, it is His, and yet I'm going to take what is Jesus Christ, and I'm going to give it over to the authority of a stranger. We're lying because we're saying, I claim to believe that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, but with my body... I'm perverting that picture. I'm denying that picture. I'm destroying that picture. Brother, the point is, is that what we do with our bodies matters. Because whatever we do with our bodies, we do to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that goes beyond just behaving sexually. How, are, how we behave sexually. What we do with our bodies we do to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united to Him in union, and so we include Him in everything that we do with our bodies, and this is how union ought to direct and inform our behavior in this life. Well, fourth and finally, Paul brings us to a fitting conclusion here with this summary exhortation and commandment. Fourth and finally, we see The body is also a sacred dwelling place of God. The body is a sacred dwelling place of God. Paul kind of reaches the conclusion here and addresses them very specifically in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The command to flee, it echoes Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. The command to flee, kind of in this sense, um, depicts how how dangerous and entrapping sexual sin is. That that we don't just struggle with it, that we don't just resist it, that we don't just fight it. Because typically when we try to approach it that way, the battle is already lost. We never need to underestimate its powers. We don't just sidestep it. We don't just, you know, kind of look the other way. We turn and run. Because if we don't, we'll easily be mastered by it. Flee. But why do we flee? Again, he can't just give a command. Paul never just gives a command and, and, well, that settles it. God said it. No, he, he gives a theology behind it. He gives a reason behind it. Why do we flee sexual immorality? Because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. 
But in sexual immorality, we sin against our own bodies. A lot of speculation as to what this means. One thing's for sure is that he's not saying that sexual sin is the worst kind of sin or that it does the most damage. Um, in fact, some see this as you know, another slogan from the Corinthians. Every other sin we commit is outside the body. Um, we know that other sins like gluttony and drunkenness and laziness also destroy the body. But I mean, we can't, can't, can't we acknowledge that in very real ways that sexual sin does kind of damage us uniquely? We open up ourselves to someone entirely, body, spirit, emotions. And, and when that is severed, when that is, you know, it, it brings us real emotional and psychological and sometimes physical trauma. Don't we know how sexual sin often carries guilt and shame that is, that is unique and it's, it's so clearly linked to depression and suicide and other self-destructive behaviors? Just look at Suicide rates among the homosexual community, the transgender community, or drug addiction, or alcoholism among people, uh, prostitutes and others who give themselves over to sexual sin. It's really, really high. Yeah, we can say it destroys the body in some sense, but I think the point here really is that it violates and damages and destroys the most significant fact about our existence as Christians, which is that we are united to Jesus Christ. I think this is one way of saying, you know, sexual sin, it destroys the body of Christ, pulls you away from Christ, pulls you away from the church, pulls you away from the body of Christ. Flee it. Flee it, Paul says. And yet again, he doesn't just give a warning, but he quickly backs this up with the gospel. Look again at verse 19 and 20. Right after he says, flee, and he gives a warning, this is going to destroy the body. He doesn't end there, but he comes back and says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that you are not your own? Do you not know that you were bought with a price? On the basis of this, glorify God. And brother, we've covered a lot of ground here and I've gone on for quite a while. It's time to wrap this up a little bit. But I want you to just don't miss this point. It's an awesome conclusion. It's astounding. It's life. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that is a gift from God? We, we learned a few weeks ago that the church is the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Well, if the church, as the gathered people of God, is the dwelling place of God, well, then if you are a member of the church, you are part of the whole. And that in this sense, then, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In this sense, then, your physical, earthly body is a sacred space where God is pleased to inhabit and reside. It's not a temporary suit that you'll shed at your death. It's not a, a, a house, really, that, that, that kind of, you know, a house for what is most true about you, your, your inner self. God delights to dwell in your body. 
And in the Old Testament, just think of all the passages about nothing impure, nothing defiled could ever approach the temple or the tabernacle. How then should this instruct our own behavior? A helpful way of thinking about this might be, well, we reverence the presence of God in worship. Right? Well, that same perspective should guide all of our life. How would you behave in church? How should you behave out in the world? Because our bodies are dwelling place of God. And then he moves to say, our bodies are not only this, but you were bought with a price. He, he moves to the language of the slave market. Jesus Christ purchased your body. In his life, in his death, in his suffering, he purchased you for himself. Which is the exact opposite of my body, my choice. My body, my choice is an anti-Christian creed. And we see that right here because the gospel says this is not your body and it's not your choice. But brethren, that's, that's true freedom. And this is where this conclusion is so beautiful and so astounding. Maybe you're here today and you struggled quite a bit with sexual sin. Maybe you're here today and you think, I've given my body over to so many. I've surrendered to so many lusts. I've looked at so many images. I've sinned against Him so many ways. I've taken Jesus Christ into the bedroom again and again and again in sinful ways more times than I can remember. I've defiled the temple over and over again. I've destroyed my body. I've destroyed it physically. I've destroyed it psychologically. I've destroyed it mentally. But don't forget... This comes on the heels of what we saw last week. Such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ here today, if you are trusting in Him, if you are looking at His life as your life, His death as covering your sins, His righteousness as your obedience, you have the assurance that you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, you are clean, you are pure, you are a spotless virgin in His eyes. And just think of how astounding it is that as sinful and as wicked and as corrupt and as filthy and as dirty as your mind and heart can be, Christ loved that so much that He gave Himself for you. He wanted that for Himself. He wanted you for Himself. And He wanted you in order to free you. And to purify you. And to love you. And to dwell with you. That's how we can look at this and say, you know what? My past sins, they don't define me. My, my, my present struggles, they don't define me. What defines me is Christ's love for me and Christ's life and death for me. And that is the key to overcoming sexual immorality and temptation in this life. It's found in God's love for you in Christ. He is pleased to purchase you. He is pleased to dwell with you. Can there be any greater motivation than that? Can there be any greater trust that, you know what, He is not enslaving me to bondage by saying, you know what, sex outside of marriage is wrong, don't do it, but He is freeing me up to that which is truly good, truly lasting, truly beautiful, truly flourishing for me? He loved you to set you free.
And thus on the basis of His love, on the basis of His life and death, on the basis of His union, on the basis of how He says, your body is good, I'm going to raise it, on the basis of all those things, glorify God with your body. Put off, but more importantly, put on. Pursue His glory. Pursue faithfulness and purity for His sake and out of love for Him. And that is what God is pleased to, to bless and strengthen and encourage so that you might put on the mind of Christ. You might not be dominated by anything. And you might do what is beneficial for the gospel in the body of Christ. This is what this passage calls us to today. Brethren, may God give us the grace and the faith to receive and believe it. Amen. Let's pray.